Welcome to the Freedom Festival Small Talks, a series of conversations with artists, creatives and those who work with them. We wanted to demystify the creative process to give you an insight into the work that these people do. Piece together some conversations and chats with our friends from all over the world. We guess it's a podcast, but we don't really know what a podcast is, so let's just call it a series of conversations. Small Talks. It has been said that the enemy of art is absence of limitations. But when do those limitations begin to encroach on the feasibility of making art a living? Does no limitations mean no art? Do limitations prevent art from existing? Has the world ever been more restricted in modern times and during the COVID pandemic? In this episode, we hear from a broad range of artists worldwide on their interpretation on the subject of restriction in art. What it's like to exist as an artist under restrictive circumstances, how what appears on the surface as a restriction is actually a part of their craft, the challenges they overcome to create their work and how it inspires and shapes their art. Born into a working class area in a northern coastal town, Stu Baxter has gone on to create a hugely successful career in music and photography. A keen advocate of the do-it-yourself ethos, Stu has seen immense success as a drummer with the band Life. With 20 years in the music industry as a touring musician, recording studio manager, producer, label manager and freelance creative, Stu talks openly about the barriers of growing up, the impact of the COVID pandemic and how almost overnight it was nearly all over. Stu also provides the musical composition with his written and performed piece titled Equidistant. Why is this always happening to us, you know? All these barriers, you know, we, we finally overcome barriers and restrictions to what we're doing and we and we get to this point and then the most ridiculous thing's happening. There's a global pandemic and it's like, who would have even thought this would happen? You know, does, is this really never going to work out? <laughs> Are we really never going to kind of break through as a, as a career band? I grew up, you know, on Hesler Road in Hull and I... Grew up in a really kind of like working class area. Grew up around a lot of struggle and poverty. And it wasn't a question of going into the arts and it wasn't, the word university never got mentioned in my family. It was never even talked about, you know, there was no money there, so we just got a job. And I've always been someone who like picks up people and likes to meet people and talk to people and keep them as friends. I'm quite like, I collect people, do you know what I mean? I love people. And there's been other people in my life that I've met that I've just, instilled something in me that there's another option or do you know what I mean you don't have to be stuck so as soon as that seed is in your mind you're never going to give up because you're like I'm not aiming for something that's impossible millions of people work in this industry so don't tell me I can't be a musician or I can't be in a band and, and make a living you know so I think you know being, being told to not do that because like it wasn't a career in the first place is almost what it felt like the government was saying or, or you know, felt like that was what it was like. Well, just forget it, you know, it's fluffy anyway. I felt a real sense during lockdown that in this area particularly, art got better and more people made art. And I think the art scene in Hull is very working class. And there's a lot of really good artists that are just, just will do anything to do what they do. 
and they've never had any money. So they've always had barriers, they've always had restrictions. But it comes from a sense of having nothing and nothing to lose, especially from you know my, my perspective and the band's perspective and people I know in Hull. It's been a sense of like, what have we got to lose? Like, if we're gonna do it, just do it. And now there's a pandemic, the world's falling apart. There's no better time because like, not only we've realized how fragile life is and how fragile, you know, the journey is and we don't know what's coming tomorrow, that, but also like, you know, when, when's there a better time to do it than now? At a time when there's so much risk and financially and everyone's struggling, you know, mentally and physically and financially and geographically, um, it just feels like, you know, such a brave thing to do, which has made me really proud of like what, what, you know, people have achieved, especially in my community. And it's made me feel more connected to my community. It's made me want to collaborate more with people. I've seen people collaborate more and see the value in each other more than ever. Um, and see the value in working together and not just going at it alone. We was at a point where we'd managed to make the band work financially. You know, we all kind of made it our main focus and we was touring full time. The end of 2019, beginning of 2020, we was not long re- released our second album. We put out another single, and we was we'd just done an arena tour with Kaiser Chiefs, and we was heading to America. And that's when we first sort of started realizing the COVID pandemic was getting serious. There's definitely a point where I thought the band would be over. We relied on travelling to be a band, you know, to to be able to make a living. Very quickly we realised that that was all compromised and that that could just ruin everything. For me personally, you know, I kind of immediately started looking at other aspects of my life. But that first month was really hard and the thing that got me out of that was a commission that I got. It was a few hundred quid to do something and I decided to do a a film called Equidistant, um, a black and white film and soundtrack created as an act of self-care and a reaction to isolation. And looking back in reflection, that was like such an important thing because I don't remember really thinking about it. I don't remember thinking about the art of it or thinking about it as a you know piece of art or music or film. I just remember seeing it really as survival and it felt like a thing that I didn't really think about. But now in reflection, it's kind of kick-started a whole new part of my career. And I've kind of had this awakening of like, right, I need to crack on because things are too fragile. The pandemic's kicked me into that zone, but it's myself who's taken that responsibility to act upon it. Historically, music has been a vibrant and important part of Afghan culture. But war and neglect has left more students without teachers, teachers without resources, and professional musicians without a context for their art. A musician from a renowned family, Dr Ahmed Samast is a founder and director of the Afghanistan National Institute for Music in Kabul. For over a decade, the institute flourished. But with music forbidden under Taliban rule, the Taliban released a statement accusing Dr. Samas of corrupting the youth of Afghanistan. 
with a musical piece titled Dawn, which is written and performed by Mina Kaimi. Dr. Ahmed Samas talks about what the future holds for the country. This immensely beautiful work is dedicated to the women of Afghanistan and represents their struggle for justice, equality and freedom with the hope that comes with a new dawn. And when the Taliban reached on the streets of Kabul, the gates of Kabul, of course I could not uh, sit and watch because I knew if the Taliban were going to capture the power, the first victim of their uh, banditism and the radicalism will be music and music of Afghanistan. I was born in Afghanistan in the family of a musician. My father was a conductor and songwriter and a music educator. Always I was surrounded by music. Our house was always full of music. So that's uh, how my interest in music began. I enrolled myself in the first and in the only music school that existed in Afghanistan and I completed the music school. And when I finished my secondary music school in Afghanistan, I awarded a scholarship and I went to Russia where I studied in Moscow Conservatory for my bachelor degree and then master degree. And when it was time for me to return back to Afghanistan and to serve my people and also to put and musical skills, the situation changed. Uh, the civil war uh, broke out in Kabul in 1992, and then the Taliban arrived, and I was not able to return back to Afghanistan, and it was also the time that the discrimination against music and musicians began. And during the Taliban time, I could not return to Afghanistan, but when the, the, the regime of the Taliban collapsed, that was a moment that I could think about that what was the impact of the war, what was the impact of the mass migration of Afghan musicians. I went to Afghanistan to see what's happening and uh, how, how uh, I may contribute, uh, how I may add to uh, the music scene of the country, working out what's, what the country needs in, uh, when it comes to music. Afghan musicians did not have a voice in the music space of Afghanistan. Afghan musicians did not have a proper opportunity, infrastructure and resources to make music and to uh, share the beauty of their skills with the rest of the community. The musical identity of Afghanistan you could not see. So all this, all this uh, made me to make a decision and to think uh, of the future of music and uh, my role and my place in Afghan society. So when I went back to Afghanistan, I went back with a very large project, a project that was uh, covering the entire music sector of Afghanistan. So my idea was to establish a proper music education program for the Afghanistan and so then the government of Afghanistan had much, uh, had many other priorities. Uh, music was considered as a luxury for Afghanistan. When we showed to the community, when we showed to the international community, to the donor community, that within a very short period of time, we managed to change and transform the lives of disadvantaged kids of the country. And uh, I remember an ambassador visited our school, and after I gave him a tour of the school, and eventually I took him to the orchestra room where the Afghan youth orchestra was rehearsing and practicing, and each country had 
about 10,000 soldiers on the ground in Afghanistan. And when he saw everything, and when we told them the stories of the kids and how everything is happening and everything is changed and we are moving, by the end, he turned to me and he said, Dr. Salmas, the job that you're doing here is much more important and much more useful to Afghanistan than the presence of 10,000 soldiers from my country. What Taliban are doing is ignorance. It's a total ignorance about the beauty of music. They uh, not only taking the freedom of the people, but they are also scared of the power of music. It's music who can enlighten people and take the toughest messages to the far, far corner of Afghanistan and to enlighten the people of Afghanistan. The future belongs to the people of Afghanistan. And the future, in spite of all the bleakness of today, it is bright. Esther Corley is a practising visual artist based at Shirethon House in the centre of Hull. Mother of two, Esther talks about the challenges as a freelance artist and the balance of home life, work, raising children, working part-time and the impact this has on creativity. Esther creates paintings, drawings, teaches art sessions, courses and workshops. She runs individual classes, group drawing workshops, and works alongside arts organisations to develop and deliver creative arts workshops, with music written and composed by the Broken Orchestra. There was many times when I thought I should do a PGCE and become an art teacher. But I, I knew that it wasn't actually compatible with how I wanted to do things. So it really just pushed me into making the things that I was doing freelance more stable. One of the challenges it felt for me, particularly being a single parent, um, this kind of realisation that, um, well, the level of responsibility that you have, the need to put your time into raising your children and that being the most important thing. Because of the way that I've preferred to work, which has been in the way where I've had my own space and quite a bit of time to develop ideas and to play about and to explore, there was a stage at which I wondered whether I could do both. At first I felt restricted by, by having chunks of my day sort of carved out for doing different things and then it would be hard sometimes to focus. The only way to kind of come to terms with that was to say, well this, I can't do it in this way, so I need to put that on hold and find a different way of doing it. Before I got my part-time job, I felt that everything that I did 
uh, needed to be within the realms of art. But actually, I think I was tiring myself out. You realise that you could do a, a minimum wage job without the stress. I think there came a point also where I, w I wanted the bit of security that um, a part-time job enabled. And then I think that allowed for less pressure really, less pressure on the art that I created to be sellable and therefore that opens up more ability to be experimental which, and be risk-taking, which I want to do, I always want to do that. I think it depends on how much you can juggle and how much downtime you actually need and how much processing time you need and time to decompress. I think personally I've found that I do need bits of pockets of time where I'm either doing something that's predictable um, or I'm actually taking time to relax because you can actually drive yourself a little bit mad with too, too many ideas and to put, put a lot of pressure on yourself. So I think, I think for me, taking bits of time out to engage with things outside of art uh, feed through and maybe refresh me a little. So I don't know, I think as creatives we're quite tenacious lot anyway and <laughs> that we, or, or just um, stubborn or something, like you'll find a way. I think some people thrive on it and um, they obsessively are um, creative. It's a, it's a balancing thing, it's a, well I need to be flexible with this, I can, I can do other things, I can step outside of this for a period of time and then I can go back into it or I can find a way that works. I mean, I've never been the person who's wanted um, holidays or cars or, or any of that. You know, I'd much rather have none of those things, but to be able to, to, to paint and draw and be creative. And I accept that I can't do that exclusively, but I'd rather be on that side of things than be, I don't know, on some kind of career path. Laurel Lawson is a choreographic collaborator, dancer, designer and engineer with the Kinetic Light Dance Collective. Kinetic Light works in the disciplines of art, technology, design and dance, whilst creating, performing and teaching at the nexus of access, queerness, disability, dance and race. Laurel is best known for weaving together abstract and concrete themes with overarching mythological inspiration and with attention to engaging, innovative and immersive audience experience. With an original composition from the Broken Orchestra, Laurel talks about how access is not one size fits all and how the restrictions of COVID actually meant that everyone else started paying attention to accessible art in a way that the disabled community has already been doing for years. When I was a child, little girls in wheelchairs didn't go to ballet class. I had no idea um, that one day I would be a professional choreographer. I mean, how ridiculous is that for a little girl in a wheelchair? 
every artist in kinetic light is disabled. We believe that disability is a, a critical, unmissable artistic perspective, not as impairment, not as medicalized classification, uh, but disability as culture, disability as identity brings something important to the art world. We're pushing hard right now on every front. Uh, of course, COVID has you know really impacted. COVID was kind of like everybody else suddenly started paying attention to access because their events had been moved online. Um, in a way that disability community and disabled artists have been doing for years already. Accessible art comes from accessible organizations. Access isn't one size fits all. Access is never one size fits all. I wrap a lot of pieces together. Um, it's important to me to be doing novel work, to be solving questions that haven't been solved before. That aspect of research and design is uh, really core. How we can create artistically, aesthetically equitable access is a, a huge part of my work in quote-unquote accessibility. Well, access is the art. This is something that is a platform of art with, you know, a hundred different entry points and a million different ways of experiencing it. This is dance and it's an installation and it's a painting and it's a text. I don't think we talk enough about the ways in which the entire field is entirely shaped by institutions, by what is funded, what is presented, what is awarded. We don't even call it access sometimes because it simply is one aspect of this artistic experience. Is that recognized as such uh, by the institutions that form a container for professional art? You know, that's really, I think, an ongoing conversation. It helps if art is entertaining and art asks a question. Art should leave you changed in some way. And uh, every, every new piece is an opportunity to discover something new, to ask a different question and to offer different kinds of change. Renowned author of titles, Scream If You Want To Go Faster, 
Sweardown and Kingdom. Russ Litton is a writer and musician who was born in the 60s, grew up in the 70s and left school in the 80s. Working a variety of jobs whilst building a career as a freelance writer, Russ has written for TV, film, radio, stage and various newspapers and magazines. Russ speaks openly about the early lack of encouragement for his family when choosing writing, with music written and composed by the Birkin Orchestra. From being very young, I've always had a very strong idea of what I wanted to do. I mean, I wanted to make a career in music. I mean, the options were go and work for council, go and work at aerospace. Oh, YTSs, you go to YTS at the time, you know. I didn't want to do any of that. I was a lyric writer. And I liked the parameters that put around. There's a verse, there's a chorus, it can only be so long. I always remember my auntie going, what, you're in a band? What, do you think you're going to be famous? Like the House Martins. Like real disparaging. And I remember thinking, well, I've seen the House Martins at a Dolphy Club. I know one of them. So it's not that pie in the sky, you know what I mean? And coming from where I came from, you're sort of not really encouraged to have very many lofty ambitions, you know what I mean? It's a case of, look, what you should do really is be a plumber, get a trade. You might as well have said I wanted to be an astronaut as to be a writer, do you know what I mean? It just wasn't on the table. I knew one thing, I didn't want a mundane job in an office or a factory that killed all my hours, you know, and took away my life, basically. I just didn't see the point in it. So uh, that was my thing, being in the band and, and being a lyric writer. But when that finished, I thought, well, what can I do? And I thought, well, I better get some qualifications because I just left school with nothing. So I did an access course, went to university. From then on, I went to, um, I moved to Prague and became an English teacher. There's a load of kids in Prague now talking English with a null accent, and it's my fault. <laughs> Up until COVID, I was sort of like, had what they called a portfolio career. Do you know what I mean? Like doing bits and bobs, teaching bits of creative writing doing sort of musical jobs, doing bits of radio stuff, uh, doing freelance journalism. And it was great, and then Covid it and just wiped it all out. I was working in prisons at that point as well, doing creative writing in prisons. Now there's a place where time and money are corralled <laughs> to like an amazing effect, you know. Well, I mean, in, in prison they say you either find the gym or the church or the library. But you've, there's a lot of hours to fill and, and writing tends to make the time disappear. Of course, you're talking about people who are constantly written about. You know, they've got reports written about them, they have psychoanalysis, you know, social workers, probation workers. And I always just say to them, look, you know, if you don't write your story, someone else will. You tell them that you can't get it wrong. I always say to them, you can't get it wrong, you can, you can do it better. You know, but you can't, whether, whether something's good or bad, who's to say, you know. Prison, I think prison should be a pause. It should be like a, a, a space in your life where you don't have to worry about bills, etc, etc. All you have to worry about is what you're going to do next. It's a good opportunity to, to like reflect and, and have a think and, and get your thoughts down on paper. Did you find the most amazing wordplay and lyrics coming out of lads who, who, who are barely literate? You know, and they don't write stuff down, they just memorise it. What I love most about the creative act is the act of doing it. The rest of it is an hassle. The rest of it is a headache. 
can I do creative work in anonymity, in silence, and with no eyes on it, and still get the same sense of satisfaction from it? I think probably I do, I will, yeah. Because what I love about the creative act is the actual act of doing it, the end result. I ain't got that much control over really whether people like it or buy it or want it. And I'm a bit sick of hustling, to be honest. Time is more important than money to me. I'd rather have the time to sort of write and do the things I want to do than, you know, slave my guts out for somebody else and have no and be exhausted at the end of the week. Thank you for listening to Small Talks. I've been your host, Jenny Harrison, Head of Marketing and Creative Media at the Freedom Festival Arts Trust. Big thanks to Pat and Carl from Broken Orchestra for producing this work so creatively and brilliantly. Do visit the website, freedomfestival.co.uk, and you can see other episodes from this series, plus other material which you might find interesting. <laughs>